So last week, uh, as I do sometimes, I started a mini-series inside of a larger series, sort of a meta thing I do sometimes. Uh, and Yeah, yeah, it's, it's complicated here. Uh, but I'm uh, talking about four types of responses to God's Word, because it, it strikes me that in First and Second Kings, especially in Second Kings, where, where the focus shifts um, from this genealogy of kings, which is there is some of that that's still a form in the book, but the, the prophets take a more center seat. And the prophets are, are not supposed to be special in and of themselves. They're mouthpieces for God. And the very fact that God speaks to us at all is a miraculous gift of grace. That, that he doesn't just ignore us, uh, kind of shake his head with disappointment and just reflood everything and start over is a miracle. The fact that he knows you exist because in comparison to him, you're like an ant. And I personally am not aware of, I might even be stepping on one right now and not know it, right? It's, it's an infinite difference between us and God. And that he, when he speaks, it's like, wait, this is the fact that he, even if it's judgment from God, it's grace that he would speak to us at all. And so we see this theme in Kings that God sends prophets, they prophesy, hey, remember God, repent, stop worshiping little things you made, um, like their gods and worship the God, because there's only one God, and then they don't like it, and they tend to do things like stone them or reject them or treat them poorly. Um, and this is a theme. And so I have seen four types of responses to God's word. Um, Tony Morita and his great commentary on first and second kings explores these um, pretty extensively and i'll give them to you four four types of responses to god's word one is obedience you know just doing what god says <laughs> that's the that's the preferred one in case you're not sure uh, number two is rebellion number three is impatience and four is cynicism and i covered the first two last week obedience we looked at naaman uh, the very simple obedience of Naaman to just do what Elisha said that made no sense. It was, in fact, it was a little insulting um, and not, you know, honoring of his station. And sent him to dip into the Jordan, and he just did it. It didn't make sense, but it was, so he didn't have this emotional kind of like, oh, I'm sure this is going to work. He just did it, and it worked. And then we have also the simple obedience of the unnamed Jewish slave girl who just said, hey, maybe, maybe if you could find a way to get over to Elisha in enemy territory, maybe he could heal you because I've seen it. I grew up seeing it and hearing the stories. Maybe if you just found him, you'd be healed. Then the rebellion of basically everyone else. <laughs> um, and so this we're looking at impatience and cynicism. And I just want to say up front that, if, that God wants to help you. Like, isn't that good news? He doesn't just want to. He in fully intends and will help you. He's going to, to, to help you not be cynical and not be impatient. So as you're reading these negative examples, which I feel like, I don't know if you feel this way when you're reading, you know, Kings as like a whole, like, chunk all at once, it gets a little depressing. It, it just sort of starts to feel like no one can get it right. And I think that's part of the you and I are in the same place. If you feel a little bit like, I just can't get this right, you are correct. 
And what we need is God. And that's where we're going to end up this morning at the end. Okay, so, so let's start with uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 25 through 29. If you'll recall, we ended last week with, after all this miraculous stuff and Elisha beating the, the, the Syrian uh, armies without raising a finger just by prayer and being a little devious and sneaky, but prayer. He completely beat them. Ben-Hadad responds to that, not with repentance as one would expect, but he lays siege to the city of Samaria. Sends his entire army, it says, every soldier, all of his army's resources to surround Samaria and not allow food into the city or anyone out of the city. That's what a siege is, all right? You surround it, and you're basically like a boa constrictor, forcing them slowly into starvation until they give up, all right? This is not the, what we see in the movies where they all show up and they're just firing things over the walls at each other and trying to climb the walls. This is just them not just sitting there and enjoying their life while the people inside the city are slowly starving to death. Okay, that's what a siege is. So that's the background. So verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, sarcastically, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Of which there was none at the time. Verse 28 and the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Yeah. That's how bad it is. That's in the Bible. Things have come apart at the seams in Samaria. They're not just starving, but their all human dignity has been left behind. All sense of morality has been discarded. And they are desperate and willing to do anything. Like, look at what she's upset about. She's not upset about the fact that they are boiling their children and eating them. She's upset because she had a deal. She had a deal with her friend. And the deal was, we eat your kid today and we'll eat mine tomorrow. And then tomorrow came and she hid her son and wouldn't let her eat him. And she's upset because it's not fair that we ate my son yesterday, and now I can't eat yours today. That's unfair. Do you see how things have crumbled in Samaria? <laughs> like, their sense of even what's fair is gotten complete, has been lost, right? A donkey's head sells for $150, roughly $150, bucks to eat it, okay? In case you weren't clear on what they're doing with the donkey's head. They're eating it. 
People are buying pigeon dung for what I calculate to be about 10 bucks, like a handful of pigeon dung to eat. That's how bad it is. Okay, that's, so when we say siege, it ain't pretty. But it's also, I think, a picture that the foundation in Israel is crumbling. Their sense of what's right and wrong, where God is in my life, my worldview has been shattered because when your worldview is shattered, you begin to do crazy, insane things that you never imagined you would do until things become hard because the foundation is not secure. It's not in God. So King Joram, who's Ahab's son, by the way, because I don't think we've talked about him yet, he's walking along the wall and he encounters a woman that calls out to him crying for help and he has, he has no help. He, he has no resources. He, he has no food. He has no wine. He has nothing. He has nothing to drink. He has nothing to offer this woman. And then she tells him this crazy story that she's upset about and why she's upset, which is sort of a mind-boggling uh, disintegration of the moral fabric of this entire community. And look at Joram's response. Verses 30 to 31, it says, When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So he tears his clothes, which is a very, very Jewish way of expressing total emotional repulsion. Like, like I, don't, I don't know how to, it's like the ultimate expression of, Rah! right, of like, woe is me. And underneath his royal clothes, his kingly clothes, are these, is hidden away the sackcloth, which is the clothing of repentance. starvation, the lack of care for one another, the sinful loss of human dignity, and the way they're so casually accustomed to cannibalism is just more than he can bear. And what we see is what I think is a shallow repentance that's been going on with the king. He has been repenting quietly where no one can see. He's not been leading the nation into repentance. He's not been calling for a nationwide or even citywide repentance He's not even been saying, I, the king, need to repent. He's been repenting quietly underneath his clothes. It's superficial. And the suffering has revealed the shallowness of his repentance. That it's not real repentance at all. Is God impressed by Joram's repentant clothing? Does God go, oh, that's what I was looking for? I just wanted somewhere, someone to wear the right clothes so that I could relent. Thank you, King, for your amazing act of repentance by secretly, hidden away, wearing the clothing of repentance. It has not moved God's heart at all because it's not what God wants. He wants actual repentance. He wants to be worshipped, and he wants them to stop worshipping idols. So he said, he said last week, in the text we read last week, he allowed Syria to win. He, he sovereignly enabled the bad guys to win over the good guys in order to bring them 
to repentance. And here they are, and it's about as bad as you can imagine it ever getting when you walk away from God. And Joram can't even manage to repent outwardly. He can't even put on a show of repentance. He does it privately. Joram was trying it on to see if it would work. But it was not a heart level turning to God away from idolatry. He hadn't even made any changes in their worship. Instead, he approached God the same way he approached his false gods. This is how you worship false gods. Is you, you, you do little acts. Little, you leave them little offerings. You do little acts of service. You, you, you do these little rituals to, to manipulate the God into doing something good for you. And Joram has been treating God the same way. Well, if I wear the clothing of repentance, if I just follow this thing, this prescription that will make God bless us and the siege will end. He was wearing the clothing of repentance without the heart underneath it. And so in his response, in his desperation, as he tears his clothes and he says, it's Elisha's fault. <laughs> it's all Elisha's, that prophet who's been telling me for years and years. And then Elijah before him with my father, Ahab, just causing trouble and telling us over and over again, stop worshiping these false gods or God's going to bring wrath against you. Stop worshiping these false gods. Worship Yahweh, the only true God. And he's just causing all this trouble. And it must be Elisha's fault. You see how shallow his repentance is? That when he's pushed and pressed by this tragedy, what comes out of him is the real him. Don't we do this with God too? I mean, don't we try to do little things to try to pull the right religious levers to manipulate God into doing something for us when we know that the real thing he's after is just our repentance, like real? Have you ever noticed that just coming to church more doesn't move the hand of God? And doing more things for him doesn't move his hand? There's always something he's pointing at going, I want your heart. And you're like, well, I'd rather not. I just, can I just wear the clothes? <laughs> Is that all right? No, it's not. We're going to stay here, surrounded, until you take the clothes off and we get down to your heart. So much of church history is filled with people coming up with new and interesting ways to please God without actually giving him our hearts. So look at what happens. Um, I don't know why these people don't learn not to send people after Elisha. But they don't. It's what we do. We talked about that, the silliness of our rebellion last week. But here, chapter 6, verses 32 to 33, Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. 
is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Because this is a little bit of a, the way this is written is a little confusing. The messenger is an assassin. And for whatever reason, he doesn't end up trying to kill Elisha. Uh, I mean, if I was the messenger, I would not try to kill Elisha. If I had heard the stories about Elijah and Elisha, when people get sent to kill him, I would be pretty hesitant. I also would be hesitant to say no to the king when he told me to go kill him. So I would probably do some sort of in-between, which is like, go to him and say, please don't kill me, right? But we don't know. We're not told exactly what happened there. But God shows Elisha that someone's coming, and before they can bar the door, he gets there. And Joram's message to him is the trouble, this trouble is from Yahweh. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? That's the message he sends. Those are Joram's words. This is from God, and I'm not waiting. Why should I stand around and wait? I need to do something. He can't wait on God because his relationship with God is shallow. We've seen that already. The suffering of the famine has tested his faith, and it's been found to be only as deep as his clothing is. It's as far as his faith goes in God. Here's the point. You can't try Jesus on like a pair of shoes. Walk around in them and see if they fit and make your feet feel good. And if they don't, you just take them off and try on another. You can't treat Jesus like just another religion that you try out. You Google it and you learn what this religion is about and you try it on. You decide if you believe it or don't believe it. That's not how Jesus works. He's not in the same category as other religions. It's like comparing Yahweh to Baal. And Elijah would say, Baal doesn't exist. God is not in the same category as your false god. You don't put them next to each other and see which one wins. That's not how this works. One does not exist, and one is the only one. Right? And this is how Jesus is. Jesus told stories, parables. One of them is the pearl of great price. Remember this one? You have a, a man, a, a merchant, who finds a pearl that is of basically infinite value. And he goes and he sells everything he has in order to get enough money to buy that one pearl. And Jesus is like, I'm the pearl. That's what I am. I'm the thing that you sell everything for. You don't add me to your life as another component of a balanced, healthy, happy life. I am everything. And you sell everything. What was Jesus' offer to the rich young ruler? Go sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, then follow me. And he went away sad because he couldn't do it. He wanted to try Jesus on like a garment and say, does it fit or does it not fit? Does it solve the problems I want him to solve? And you use Jesus like a tool in your tool belt. This is how people want to treat Christianity. And it does not work. God will not have it. He will not. He wants it all or he wants nothing. Every one of the 12 disciples followed Jesus into more trouble. Because when they met Jesus, they immediately realized that knowing him was of infinitely greater value than the pain of any temporary trouble they might encounter in this short life. Most of the time, 
Every Christian who says, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you, they follow him at some point into more trouble than what they had before. Why would anyone do that? Sounds like a bad deal. I become a Christian, life gets harder? Yes. That's what he promised you. As you go down his path, look at the path of Jesus. The road of Jesus was hard. So why would anyone sell everything they have to follow him? Well, because he's of infinite value. He is far more valuable. It's far more joyous to follow him into trouble than to live apart from him. This is what all those disciples discovered. It's what the rich young ruler couldn't do. And it's what Joram couldn't do. He didn't see that God was more valuable. He wanted God to be in the long list of other gods that he worshipped to get him to do, to do different things for him as a king. So the inverse is also true. If you're not willing to lose all that you have to follow him, then you have not yet seen him for who he really is. If you're just trying to, if, you, if you're saying, hey, you know, I've tried the Jesus thing. I'm not sure it's working for me. Not how this works. <laughs> There's no trials. There's no warranty period. There's no return policy. It is not a heavenly Amazon where you can buy stuff and just ship it back for free. If you just walk into TJ Maxx, say, I'd like to return Jesus. They're not going to take him back. It's not how it works. I worry sometimes that our gospel, the gospel that we present to the world is anemic and has no challenge. It's like a salesman coming to the door trying to get you however he can to buy the product. And so we say, look, Jesus will fix everything. He won't. There are going to be some things that are a, a, a difficulty that he will let sit there, just like Paul in order just to remind you every day that you're not all that and you have to depend on him. He will not fix everything. He'll fix some things. And some things will be miraculously better. And other things will get harder. And you follow him through the hardship because you love him. It's him. He's the prize. Not this life. He's the prize. And you get concerned. He's just amazing. I can't believe how much he loves me. He set me free. I'm not a, I'm, I'm holy. Like, that's what he's done for me. So I can, I can follow, I'll follow him anywhere. Isn't that what you do when you love somebody? You say, I'll go with you. I don't care what we go through. I'm following you. Let's do it together. This is what Joram has not figured out. And he thought that if he just wore the clothing of religion, the clothing of repentance, the clothing of a Christian, without actually giving himself to worshiping Yahweh, that it would be enough. And God says, nope, it will not. So when they move on to chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, so that was the shallow impatience. And now we have the fourth response, which is cynicism. And we'll connect these two together in just a second. It says, but Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Meaning there's going to be food. It won't be cheap, but it won't be expensive like it's been. It'll be actual food. 
Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So the captain responds to this prophecy from Elisha that the, the famine's ending tomorrow. I mean, he puts a time on it. Bold. And he tells them how much the food's going to sell for. Also bold. And the response from the captain is, can this thing really be? He doesn't say it's not going to happen. That's cynicism. It's like, we'll see. Hmm, shoulder shrug. We'll see. Elisha's immediate response to the captain is, for your cynicism, you will see that this is true, but you will not be able to eat any of it. You'll get to see the goodness of God, but you will not enter into it. You just have to watch the food go by. And this is fulfilled the next day. We'll see that in a second. So how God delivers them is a really funny and heartwarming story. Um, I'm just going to summarize it. I suggest you read it. There's two lepers that live at the gate because they're not allowed into the city because they're unclean, right? They can't be near people. So these two guys, like I just picture this. Somebody's got to make a movie of this because it's set up perfectly. These two, two kind of funny, cantankerous lepers hanging out. They're just buddies because they're both lepers. Like, what else do you need in common if you're both lepers, right? Now you're friends, instant friends. And so they're hanging out at the gate and they're chit-chatting back and forth. And they say, look, man, we're, everybody's dying here. Like that dude right there is eating dove dung. Like, things are not good. I don't know what the lepers are eating because I don't know if they even have access to the dung, right? So they're just sitting there like things are bad. And they say, look, I think it would be better off. We have better chances if we just leave and go to the Syrians who are camped outside the wall. If we just go out there, they might kill us. They might just like see us coming and go, just kill them. But there's a chance that they won't. And if we could just be prisoners over there, then maybe we'll have some food. But, or we could just die. But dying might be better than this situation. So they decide together, we're going to do it. Let's go. So they just set off in the twilight of the day and head off towards the Syrian armies. And what does God do? I love this so much. These two gnarly lepers who are... The, the outsiders of that community, the worst, the lowest of the low, the worst off of the worst, they go walking off probably to their death. And as they approach the camp of the Syrians, what the Syrians hear is not two lepers shuffling along through the sand. What they hear is an enormous army that is so large, it freaks them out. And they run, leaving all their stuff behind. And later we see when they went and like tracked them down, they found like bits of equipment and spears and things like in a trail through the desert. They were running so hard and so fast. They were so freaked out. So these two dudes are shuffling along. Oh, well, we're probably going to die. And they come into the camp. And what do they find? Nobody but just a bunch of food and a bunch of gold and silver. And they have a party. They go nuts. You can picture it, can't you? What? 
quick. They're going into tents. They're pulling food out. They're just stuffing their faces. They're sticking stuff in their clothes. They're grabbing like silver and stuff and trying to stuff it in their pockets. They cannot believe their luck. Two dudes bandaged up that no one even knows they're there. And then they have this great moment where they stop and they kind of, I can imagine like their mouths are stuffed like chipmunks. And they're talking through their food in their mouths. Is that you know what? We we I feel sort of bad. We we should go back and tell the guys. And he's like, yeah, I don't know if we should. I think we should. I feel bad. We should tell somebody. People are starving. Apparently, like they're eating children and stuff. We should probably bring some of these canned goods back to camp. And so they finally decide. I'm sure after they were nice and full, they go back and they tell and they share the news. I just love this because the heroes in the Bible are not ever the people we would choose to be heroes. And we see that over. We got the unnamed, nameless slave girl last week. And this week, these two jokers heading off and just, man, how much fun was that for them? And how fun would it have been for them to come back and be the ones that got to share the good news? Pretty awesome. Verse 12 shows us that when Joram hears the news, he does not believe it. Despite Elisha's prediction and the report of the two men, he is also cynical. So we have the captain who doubted it when he heard it. We have Joram, even when the two guys came back with the report, he didn't believe it. He thinks it's a trap, and so he sends soldiers that he trusts to confirm it. And once they finally confirm it and come back, he buys in. And in all that commotion of them bringing the food in, which must have been like, you know, quite a party, when you've been starving the way they've been starving and you've seen food for the first time and I don't know how long, the captain gets trampled in the crowd as the carts of food come walking by in front of him. He sees the goodness of God and the provision of God, but you cannot eat of it, just like Elisha said. This is what cynicism does to us. It brings us close enough to see the goodness of God, but not to enter into it. God's provision passes us by because we failed to completely believe him when he gave us the opportunity for obedience. Have you ever noticed that your opportunities for obedience are doors that open and then close? They don't stay open because time. Time is the worst because it just keeps going. So you get an opportunity, door opens. Do, it, do this. You don't do it, you don't do it, you wait. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Door closes. Ah. And then you, what do you see? You have this moment where you see what God would have done if you would have obeyed him. And then another door opens later. Do this, do this, do this. Door closes. Ah, missed it. Then you get to see what God does when you obey him. And then finally, hopefully, one day the door opens and you go, okay, God, I'll just do what you say. And then you actually get to enter in. You get to eat the food that you keep seeing pass you by. This is how this works. Cynicism robs you, not of seeing God move, but of actually having him move through you. So you feel convicted to go pray for somebody. And you think, ah, I don't want to intrude. 
Ah, they don't need to hear it from me. Ah, who am I to say something? I don't know if God's going to really move through me that way or do anything. It's just going to be some weird thing that I do, and God's not really going to show up. Someone else can do it. And then the moment goes by, and it's like a, a seed in your heart that just rots and dies. You know that feeling? It's the worst. Of getting your heart filled up with something to give away, and then it dies because you didn't give it away. So I think there's two applications here. One, if you're here this morning and the difficulties of your life have revealed that your faith in God is shallow, then now is the time to go all in. This is what difficulty, trials, suffering, it's one of the things it does, is it tests your faith. It, it puts it in the refiner's furnace, and the impurities come to the surface, and you find out how pure your faith really was. How deep did it really go? This is God's provision. I know it's hard to think of hard times as God's provision. But it's God's provision so that you can see what the nature of, am I just wearing the clothes of Christianity or, am I, or does this thing go deeper than that? And you find out. And a lot of times you find out it's pretty shallow. And you kind of panic. And you go, oh man, I'm not as deep as I, I completely crumbled. I completely crumbled in that moment. I just lost it. Maybe you just lost it inside. That's what I do. I can lose it inside. And what you find out is your faith is a little shallow, and this is a faith thing. It's, you, you can't make yourself deeper. You can't make your faith go deeper, but what you can do is you can ask God to make it go deeper. Faith is tricky. It doesn't come from your will but it does involve your will. This is prayer. This is why prayer is confusing. Who's doing what when I'm praying? I don't know. It's weird. Okay, you're praying, God's listening to you, but then God's sovereign, and I don't know. It's just prayer. And so you say, God, why am I so shallow? Why am I so easily thrown off? I mean, we're criticizing Joram for not acting um, in the deepest, most faithful way during the, like the world's worst famine. And where am I at in that? Where would I be in that situation? And so we go to God and we say, will you please, Holy Spirit, put the roots of faith deep into my heart so that no matter what happens, no matter how hard the wind blows, if everybody dies everybody that I love I want to have the kind of faith that it can endure even that I want deep deep faith that no matter what happens in the world I don't freak out and I want to God help me to have the kind of faith that lets me sleep like a baby at night and work like a dog during the day like that's what I want from you I want to be at peace I don't want to be unshakable, immovable, even emotionally like a rock. I'm tuned in with what I'm feeling, and I can be expressive, but I'm not all over the place. That's the kind of faith I want, and we don't find out until things get a little hard. We get a little hungry, we go without some food, or something. Something gets taken away. 
Secondly, so that's number one. Number two, maybe you decided a long time ago that you're all in, but you've grown cynical. I think this Asbury revival thing has been interesting. Just to see how people react to the news. And I have personally seen a disturbing amount of cynicism. Well, we'll see. We'll see. And we use, we couch it in religious terms. Well, let's just wait. We won't know until we see the fruit. You're never going to see the fruit. You don't know these people. Like, who are you, right? Like, are you, are you the all-knowing eye of the, the universe where you can look and see all the fruit and judge because God's waiting on your opinion about it? No! Why are you so cynical? Aren't you a Christian? Like, don't, don't you feel this? And I feel this about, this is what I say to myself all the time. Come on, Ben. Aren't you a Christian? Like, don't you believe God? Or do you, are you waiting, are you hedging your bets with your brain? Trusting your mind and your judgment to determine when God can be trusted and when he cannot. When I can really put my weight on him and when I just need to kind of stick a toe out and see if it'll hold me. I don't want to live that way. I think for those of us especially, I don't want to exclude anybody if you're feeling convicted about cynicism, but for those of us who have been around church for a long time, cynicism is sneaky. It comes couched in all sorts of things like theological accuracy or been there, done that, seen that before. I've seen revival before, meh. I've seen, I've been in, I've seen churches grow before and it, mm, I'd rather be in a church that doesn't grow if I'm honest. Oh, aren't you a Christian? Don't you believe God, that God can do what he wants to do and that you can bank on it? This is another faith issue, right? Very similar to the first one. It's an issue of faith. Do I, can I fully believe God when, he get, when I read the scripture and I see the promises of God inside of it? What do I say in my heart? Do I say, eh, we'll see? Or do I just bank on it? And that faith that's deep, deeper than the clothing you wear will allow you to be patient enough to see it happen. You see the connection. Deep faith allows you to wait and wait on the Lord because the famine's going to end. And it's going to come tomorrow, whenever tomorrow is. <laughs> and you can wait on the Lord because you trust him, because your faith is rooted in something deeper than just how hungry you are and how bad things are around you. And you will not grow cynical and hard-hearted about the promises of God. Do not let the news wear down your faith. And tell you things are so bad. They're all falling apart and we're all in trouble. They are falling apart, but we are not in trouble. Not the church. And when you see people leaving the church and you see those, that data about the church, people are leaving in droves, like, and they are. It's because they have torn their clothes. And the sackcloth 
beneath them is too shallow. And what we're seeing, we're seeing Joram tear his clothes over and over and over again. And don't be dismayed. That wasn't real faith. That was a shallow, religious, outward thing that has at last been torn off and exposed for what it is. The real church never shrinks throughout all of history. From Acts chapter 2 to the end of time, the church is advancing and growing. Why? Because Jesus is the head of the church and he is growing his church. It is not me, it is not you, it's him, and he doesn't fail. So we're okay. Don't grow cynical. Deepen your faith. So this is what I'd like to pray for. If I could have the worship team come up. Both of these categories, impatience and cynicism, superficiality and skepticism, you could say, are connected by faith. And you can't just generate more faith, because like I said at the beginning, faith is not an emotional response. Faith is what you do. Faith is uh, Naaman getting in the river. Faith is obedience, right? It's just, I'll do what you say. So I... I I would love for all of us to just feel full of faith this morning. But it doesn't actually matter if you feel full of faith. What matters is what has God called you to do. So what does trusting God look like in your life right now? What is God asking you to trust him about? And what does it look like in terms of action? What is he asking you to do? And that's the thing you do. And I don't know what that is for you. It's going to be different for everybody. What is God asking you to think? What is he saying? Hey, trust me. Wait on this. Just wait for me. Trust me. I told you what I was going to do, so trust me. Whatever that is, there's an action there. And the action might be prayer. It might be making a decision in your life. It's all sorts of actions, but there's an action there, and that's, what, that's where the faith is. So I want to pray for your faith, but I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not praying that you just have a lot of feels that are, will be lost before you get home because the drive home's annoying and now your feelings are gone and your, but your faith hasn't left. Faith is in what you do. So I want, I want to pray for your faith, but I want you to, in your own heart before God, to drill it down to what is he asking me to do? How is he asking me to trust him? And that's what I want to pray for, that you would have the courage to do that, whatever that is. So if you would like prayer for that, why don't you slip on up here and we'll pray together. If I could have some helpful prayers come up and lay hands on whoever's up here. some more people to come pray. I don't care who it is.
All right, let's pray. Lord, first, I just ask you right now for clarity for each individual person that you would be clear with them in their heart about what it is you're asking them to do in terms of faith. God, there be no fuzziness that the enemy would not be allowed to bring confusion. God, make things simple for us. We're, <laughs> we're slow, so we need you to be simple and clear. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now that you would stir up courage and faith. God, the kind of faith that does away with shallowness, the impatience that comes from shallowness, but God, that you would drive our faith deep, that we would be resolute, not in our own selves, but in you, because we know you've called us and we know what you've told us to do. And God, I pray that you would wash away all the cynicism, the shoulder shrug, and the we'll see. God, it's not enough for us to just see your goodness. We want to enter into it. We want a taste of your goodness. So God, we repent of our hard-hearted doubt, our, the, 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 all the stuff that comes with growing older and seeing a lot of things come and go. God, give us open hearts towards you. Give us a willingness to hope in you, even if that means waiting for longer than we want to wait. God, protect us all from the cynicism of the world that seems to constantly be trying to creep into our hearts. So God, we confess right now that we believe you. We trust you, and we will wait on you. Lord, I ask you to minister to each one of these. God, a deepening of faith and a washing away of cynicism so that when they walk out of here, God, they have a clear directive from you that is actionable. God, that they would have confidence, not in themselves, not even in tomorrow, but in you. In the name of Jesus, amen.